Um, I'm a native of the Garden State, that is New Jersey. I grew up uh, in the central New Jersey, probably about 20 miles from New York City. And uh, I was born actually in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And my dad worked for General Electric. Uh, He was in medical systems all his career. My mom was kind of a stay-at-home mom, uh, did some volunteer work, did some part-time jobs in retail, that kind of stuff. And I graduated from my high school in 1970. You know, I was interested in going on to college. You know, I wanted to go to a small college, so I potentially could participate in sports and, you know, other events. Uh, I was interested in obtaining a degree in secondary education, and um, I wanted to participate in the uh, Air Force ROTC program. Eventually, you know, I got accepted. Let me see, I graduated from Grove City in uh, 1974. I was commissioned uh, into the Air Force, and my goal was I wanted to serve my country for at least four years, hopefully get overseas so I could have some good stories to tell uh, school kids about my travels in the military. And um, I uh, was ordered to report to Chinook Air Force Base in Illinois, and I wanted to get into aircraft maintenance. So when I reported for the school, uh, they told me the school was closed temporarily. They had no idea when it would open, so I had a choice, go home or go into another career field. And I said, I am not going home. I'm committed. Get me in another career field. So I went into what was called missile and munitions maintenance. And uh, after completion of that, I was assigned and probably very lucky to Effie Warren Air Force Base in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I was assigned to the Strategic Air Command, which uh, I spent a total of six years active duty with the Air Force working in that career field. I also spent time at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, which was absolutely wonderful, uh, doing uh, tests uh, of various kinds of uh, rockets and missiles and things like that. So it was definitely a different career field. Uh, I married my wife, uh, Catherine, in 1975. She was a 1975 graduate of Grove City. At that point, you know, in our life, um, my wife, we were both in graduate school, and uh, there was some discussion about uh, moving me in the Air Force, potentially to Korea or to uh, up north to another uh, strategic air command base. And, you know, we bought a home. She was working on her uh, CPA certification and we decided the heck with it we're going to stay here we like Cheyenne and so I separated from service and entered into a a 10-year break in service and um, I worked uh, I mean jobs were pretty tight especially anything with benefits and I ended up working for the city of Cheyenne I started out as a, a police officer and I worked in crime prevention I did uh, uh, all the uh, crime scene investigations and was on their SWAT team and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It it was fun, um, but it definitely had its uh, downside, too. From there, I went to work as a risk manager and personnel for the city, and then I uh, got a a pretty good offer from the state working in uh, their emergency management. And 
my salary was actually paid for by FEMA. So I was associated with FEMA, and I became an emergency planner and an instructor for them. Spent a lot of time uh, back at the National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg, Maryland, pretty close to uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And um, then I got offered a job by chance through the Army National Guard and uh, decided to come back into the service in the Army as a captain and then uh, work for the National Guard. I had uh, eventually uh, over 20 years of service time and uh, decided that uh, I wanted to uh, get back into my original hope to teach secondary school. And I got involved with the Troops to Teachers program and was working on my uh, certification and so on and so forth. So um, my time with the, uh, the National Guard is I did a whole variety of things. Most of the things I was ordered to do, I didn't have a choice. And, uh, you know, I started out in the field artillery and I was assigned. I became a finance officer, a comptroller. I went into being a personnel uh, manager as per a general telling me, this is what I need you to do. Uh, the Army was going through drawdowns, and he wanted somebody that understood finances to try to take care of those that were essentially losing their their jobs. Because at that time, you know, it was an all-volunteer military force. And he said, if you can find him a job, do it, or retire him, or get him a disability, whatever. So that was one of the big assignments I had. And then I came back, and uh, he appointed me as director of public works, and I had to become an Army engineer. And I learned all about construction and facilities management, environmental management. And I worked in that capacity up until I was uh, received a promotion to full colonel. And at that point, I left the, uh, the National Guard, and I went into the... Army Reserve, and then continued my military career. So that was up to the point of 911. So here I am chugging along as a uh, lieutenant colonel, like I said, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, working for the Wyoming Army National Guard. And um, one of the, uh, I had a, a, a wonderful engineering team, and uh, my guys actually had started pioneering. Uh, various kinds of uh, security systems. And so eventually we got tapped to go ahead and work on all 50 states and help with their uh, uh, security systems. And, you know, at that time, terrorism was a big deal. Uh, I was sent back to Fort Bragg uh, in North Carolina, and I was trained by the Special Operations Command in counterterrorism. And um, so my staff, we got into, uh, you know, planning these kinds of uh, secure facilities and, and so on and so forth. Well, at that point, the National Guard Bureau asked us to host a security conference. So we gathered uh, experts from all over the United States and then my crew. And um, we were scheduled to have this conference in Cheyenne at one of the big hotel golf-type resorts. And um, so we had representatives from all 50 states. We had a 
folks from uh, the National Guard Bureau. We had folks from the Pentagon, the Army, uh, so on and so forth, attending. And the morning of 911, that's when the conference officially started. And I had gone out there early uh, to check on my crew. And when I came in, I noticed they were all huddled around the TV. And they asked me to come over and take a look at it. And at that time, uh, they were showing the World Trade Center, and they showed the impact of American Airline 11, which uh, went ahead and, you know, hit that North Tower first. And, you know, my, my reaction was, you know, this, this was horrible, but I didn't believe that it was an accident. I thought it was something more sinister, not necessarily a hijacking and an attack, but maybe something that happened, you know, with this particular aircraft, uh, or maybe um, it was some kind of a commercial cargo type aircraft that uh, had some kind of mechanical problems or uh, something worse uh, involving the, the pilot of that particular plane. And um, so at that point, you know, we had quite a few of the folks were assembled in our uh, conference room. And I said, let's go ahead and get started. I was the, the intro keynote speaker. And I got up there, and a very few minutes later, the thing that I remember vividly were it seemed like there was 100 pagers that went off in the room. And guys were grabbing their pagers and jumping up. And and I said, okay. And, and my folks were signaling me again. We took a a short break, and that was when the second plane, uh, the American Airlines 175, that hit the South Tower. And then I knew that this was some kind of a an assault on the United States. And in in the the group of folks uh, that were attending the conference, I had a Pentagon representative, and I don't remember his name. I believe he he worked in the uh, what, what you call force protection arena, and uh, that would involve things like physical security of structures, fencing, lighting, cameras, alarms, standoff distances, all that kind of stuff. And he was there kind of as an expert. He's there, I need to get to a private telephone, come with me. So... We did, the hotel fixed us up in a booth, and, and he called the Pentagon, and he called, I believe it was called the Situation Room. It's like a, their command post. And he was talking to one of his uh, coworkers, and he was uh, telling him that something was really wrong. Uh, they thought that there were at least two other aircraft involved, um, that potentially had been hijacked, and this was some kind of an organized attack against the United States. And that was approximately uh, 9.30, 9.37 Eastern time. And while we were on speaker, you heard this, I mean, his conversation was interrupted. There was a very loud bang and, and kind of uh, almost sounded like a record player when you uh, scratch the needle across the record. And that was it. It was just static. Uh, he tried to reaccomplish uh, contact with the Pentagon, just got a busy type signal. 
And that's when the uh, third plane hit the Pentagon and killed, uh, I think it was about 125 people there, as well as uh, uh, 50, 60 people on the airplane. And um, I uh, then assisted him in getting him to the airport. We were told everything was shut down. And then we had to get him a rental car, and he literally drove back to the Pentagon. And uh, so at that point, I went back to my military assignment and was ordered uh, to go to Fort Hood, Texas. That was my military uh, unit of assignment. I was with 4th Infantry Division, and I was in charge of what is called the Rear Operations Center. You know, in a, a big Army division, you have three command posts. You have a main which is commanded by the two-star uh, division general. You have a tactical command post, which is uh, a one-star general who does all the, essentially, the fighting. And then the logistical or the rear operations center is the third, and you control all the, the aircraft, the military police, the engineers, the supply, the medical, all that stuff in the rear area is your responsibility. So that's what I uh, ended up doing. Uh, I grabbed a uh, senior NCO. We could not fly. All military aircraft was ground as well as commercial. And we drove 24 hours down to Fort Hood, Texas. And the shocking thing when we arrived, I mean, this base is, I think it's, it's one of the largest military facilities in the United States. It's over 215,000 acres, has its own airfield. Um, for fixed-wing aircraft, too. And it's, I believe there's about 55,000 military and Department of Army personnel and dependents uh, are stationed there. So it's, it's a huge outfit. And we came to the main gate. I mean, we were backed up a mile, literally. And they had uh, soldiers out there. Uh, checking each vehicle by hand, you know, opening the hood, the trunk, searching it. Um, they had dogs going through because they really didn't know what they were dealing with. And it was a huge effort. You know, it took a couple hours to get on the post itself. And then coming on the post, I noticed all the, any of the buildings that would be considered like a barracks or some kind of a uh, command facility, whatever, they were surrounded by concertina barbed wire, armed guards, there were, which was really novel, uh, M1 Abram tanks parked at all the intersections with uh, guys on their machine guns. It's like, what are we getting ourselves into, you know? And um, the one thing that struck me were personnel were walking around with gas masks, which I thought was unusual. And the other thing were there were batteries of these light any aircraft missiles called Avengers that are mounted on armored Humvees. They were uh, set up around the post, and they were ready to fire. And I found out later on that there had been a plot uncovered uh, locally that supposedly the base would come under attack by crop duster-type aircraft huh. using some kind of chemical spray, could have been just insecticide, and they were going to try to hit and disrupt the base, hence the gas mask and the, huh. uh, uh, the anti-aircraft. So, I mean, it was, it was as serious as you could get, you know. And, I mean, it's just, you know, one minute you're at home, you're 
enjoying yourself, and then the next minute, you know, you've got this environment. And believe me, it's 24-7. Everybody's running around on fire. So uh, it was quite uh, quite an experience initially. And the thing was um, that I was, uh, you know, very... Uh, struck by number one was the lack of aircraft you know we take for granted all the commercial aircraft and you know especially on a military base you have hundreds of helicopters everything is grounded and it was so eerily quiet that i remember and then the seriousness of the people i mean i thought that the folks that i dealt with were very very professional they were controlled they were trained they knew what they were doing. So it really gave you a good sense of confidence that we were in good hands. Um, and I also found out that the uh, elements of the division, we were dispersed. We were 70 miles from the base. We convoyed out. They got into some farmer's field, plowed it, and, you know, set up all our tents and equipment and we started operating from remote because we didn't know how we were going to be attacked at that point and we stayed out there in the field for for several weeks uh running operations via you know tele and and radio type communications so it um it was definitely chaotic and uh, quite an interesting experience um after a few weeks, we had a visit on base from uh, General Shinseki. General Shinseki was what is called the Army Chief of Staff. He's a four-star general. Essentially, he's a he's the guy running the army. And I always had a lot of uh, confidence in him. He had um, a good uh, special forces type background. He was a different kind of a a cat. And uh, he came and addressed our staff because we were one of the um, divisions that they were going to tap to deploy to the Middle East. And um, he began to uh, classify briefing. And essentially it was what had transpired, the attack, how they think it happened, what they were after. Uh, It got into uh, the campaign. And the thing that the term he used was nation building. He said, we're going to begin a campaign of nation building. Everybody's like, you know, the division staff is about 200 personnel. It's huge. So you can imagine when he started saying that and saying, we're going to start with Afghanistan and work our way down, you know, and he listed off all these different countries. And I thought, oh, this is like World War Three, And, um, You know, it it was uh, very sobering for the staff. You know, you could see the color drain out of some of these, you know, experiences and people. Uh, You you know, they were just, I think, awestruck at the size of the effort that was going to be made in the next month. And um, it was, uh, like I said, probably the, the most... Uh, telling thing was he said we think this campaign may take about 25 years and I don't think he was far off at all because <laughs> you know so anyway um, and so at, at that point you know we were an armored division so we're, I mean we're not gonna 
be able to move real fast. And, you know, Afghanistan is not our bailiwick. So anyway, uh, the, the 4th Infantry Division did end up just deploying a total of five times to the Middle East between uh, 911 and current. And they went to Iraq three times and Afghanistan twice. So at that uh, time, we, we went into a, a, you know, a super training mode equipment. Um, the division at that time was called, was experimental. It had been experimental for almost seven years. And they were testing all the new Army equipment, like the Apache uh, Longbow helicopter, uh, the artillery systems, the Paladin, the, the newest M1 tanks. I mean, they had all the, 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 the most advanced toys in the Army. And they were going through a concept called Force 21. And, you know, like a division in the old days would be assigned maybe like a 15-mile sector. Now we were talking about like a 40 to 50-mile sector. And this was all uh, achieved through technology. Uh, we could track all of our units, individual vehicles. We, we were using the drones, uh, the remote piloted vehicles. I could sit in my command post and I could say, what does this road look like? And they'd launch a, you know, a, a remote piloted vehicle, and I could cruise right down the road at 10 feet off the ground and look at the road surface and determine, you know, what kind of traffic it, it could hold. It was just, it was fantastic. A lot of satellite uh, technology, all kinds of uh, electronic uh, gizmos, and uh, so that was our purpose prior to 911. We were developing the whole next generation of army equipment and tactics. We had uh, a whole platoon of retired four-star generals that would go and interview us after the end of every day, asking us what went right, what went wrong, what do you think of this equipment, how would you employ it? So it was a real academic-type unit, different you know, than the rest of the, the Army at that point. So like I said, it, it transformed uh, Force 21 kind of went to the, uh, the back burner, and we went into the war on terror mode, which is a completely different way of doing things. And um, after spending some time there, uh, I went to the, my next assignment, which was the U.S. Army War College at Carlisle Barracks in uh, Pennsylvania. And I graduated from there, and then I was uh, I worked at what is called the Strategic Studies Institute uh, at the War College, as in uh, they called it a, um, it's like an instructor, and you uh, get into developing uh, an annual exercise, and you look at problems that could impact the United States and its military 10 years in the future. It's a think tank, period. A lot of very eggy people. We had tons and tons of uh, generals and uh, CIA, you know, spooky people would show up and uh, give us talks on, on different things. And, and they would look at everything, not only just warfare, but they would look at pandemics. They would look at droughts. They would look at, um, you know, food shortages, uh, technology, uh, maybe some kind of uh, uh, natural catastrophic event, you know, getting hit by an asteroid, whatever, and its impacts. And they would sit down and they'd spend a, a few weeks uh, working through these problems and coming up with solutions. 
and then they would use that for planning purposes, uh, developing equipment systems, whatever in the future. So um, that's that was primarily what I did uh, at the beginning of the War on Terror, and um, eventually uh, I did some short tours. I went to Europe and I helped them. Um, uh, NATO forces prepare for the invasion of Iraq. Uh, I worked uh, with Forces Command at Fort Monroe, Virginia, getting into homeland security issues, uh, looking at um, what you would call critical infrastructure in the United States and in various areas, identifying it and how do we protect it, like, you know, a power grid or something like that. So that was um, my initial uh, experience uh, with um, the war on terror, and uh, I uh, eventually decided to retire, and uh, I went to school for a local school school district where I became a certified uh, secondary school teacher, and I worked primarily with special ed kids. At that point, uh, I had my first teaching assignment and on the, I, you know, it was essentially, I hadn't gotten my retirement paperwork yet, but I had put my paperwork in and I got a call from the army headquarters and I will describe it as that. And, um, it was, can you put off retirement until September? And I said, hey, I'm not, I wasn't born in a pumpkin patch. What do you guys want? And they go, oh, nothing. We're just really busy. Okay, I can understand that. And and could you wait till October? And then I thought, oh, being an old fiscal guy, well, that's federal fiscal year. They're probably playing games with, you know, personnel strength, and they want to keep the strength up for funding purposes. And I said, fine, why don't we just make it one January? And they were, oh, this is great. Thank you. Boom, click. Well, what they were doing is they were concealing that we conducted a surge into both Iraq and then Afghanistan. And so what they did on the anniversary of 9-1-1, I had just come home from school, and there on my front porch was a packet about, I don't know, six, eight inches thick, and it was my mobilization orders to get to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, in 30 days because I'm being deployed to the Middle East. Thank you very much. Um, that was quite a shock. Uh, of course, I had to deal with the school district who were very unhappy with me, but I had no choice. And um, that really ruined my, you know, relationship with them. And I had difficulty after coming back off of active duty, getting back into the school district. Uh, and it was, they, they were not sympathetic at all. And um, which was a bad thing uh, for, me, for me, from a personal standpoint. And, um, you know, I ended up uh, being deployed overseas. I worked for the uh, U.S. Army Material Command. And uh, initially, I was going to be a liaison officer uh, and also get involved in contracting uh, over there, as well as liaisoning between coalition forces, NATO forces, and, and the U.S., and so on and so forth. 
getting them equipped and trained uh, up on our equipment that they borrowed. And uh, eventually, uh, I was there about a month, and one of the other colonels had a nervous breakdown, and they sent him home. I got called in by my boss, who was a one-star general from the material command, and he said, everybody likes you. You have a good sense of humor. You work good with people. Thank you for volunteering, uh, sir, sir. And he says, you're now in charge of operations for the Army Material Command for Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, you talk about, I thought the 4th Infantry Division was complex. This was a hundred times more complex, and the learning curve was straight up. And so I took that over and uh, spent time in Qatar, um, Kuwait, uh, up on the Iraq border, Saudi border, doing various uh, missions and things like that. And then eventually went up to Afghanistan, where I served as a liaison up on the Pakistani border, uh, we had, um, I worked with the Poles and the Czechs and uh, the Romanians and assorted characters who probably, uh, you didn't want to know where they came from. Uh, and uh, that was, you know, pretty much my experience uh, up to up to that point. So then I came home. It's kind of a convoluted career, but yes, I did retire in 2012, officially, with I had a total of you know approximately 32 years of service time under my belt, active in reserve, you know, Marine Corps, Air Force, and then the Army. So it uh, it was quite uh, quite a unique experience. The one thing I was very fortunate is that you know I was a high-ranking officer, so I did have a little bit of uh, ability to. Uh, take care of myself. And one of the things, especially uh, when I went up into Afghanistan, I mean, there's there's no telephones or anything. Everything was done by satellite phones. And uh, I had access uh, to that through, you know, some of the special forces guys up there. Um, I literally could call my wife almost every night Oh. from the base, you know, at late at night and, uh, and, and talk. So we stayed in touch very closely and, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, I mean, I was happy to get the hell out of there. It was, uh, you know, a very long, uh, 24 seven. I mean, they, they expected you to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day minimum. And I just thought that was so ridiculous because, you know, people break down and they need time off. And, uh, but, you know, we managed and, you know, we, uh, when I came home, I was entitled, I was still on active duty and I took 10 weeks off, uh, which was the standard uh, downtime. And, uh, it, uh, you know, it was good just to get home and be able to wake up in your own bed and take a shower and not get shot at. So, and, you know, I, I will say, I, you know, my military career started essentially around 1970, 71. So the Vietnam War was still going on. And I, I went in the Marine Corps Reserve. And I remember how 
the mood of the United States was anti-Vietnam War, uh, very anti-military. You couldn't wear your uniform off base. Um, you know, you stood out like a sore thumb with a shaved head and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I remember those days and how bad they were, you know. And when 911 broke out and when I was mobilized, all my travels were, you will travel in uniform. And not in your dress uniform, you will wear your fatigue uniform. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. And they said, nope, that's the way it is. That's the way you're going to do it. Because, you know, I guess they figured it was an all-volunteer force. And I will tell you that I was so impressed with the American public going through, like, the airports and traveling and stuff. We stopped at different areas to change planes or whatever. People would walk up to you, shake your hand, pat you on the back, offer to bar, you know, buy you a drink or I'll buy you lunch. And, and it was just, it was so amazing. Um, I give a lot of credit to the USO in the uh, airports, uh, the uh, uh, VFW, the American Legion folks. Uh, there was various civic groups, especially, you know, the Girl Scouts. Uh, they were fantastic toward, uh, they would show up at the airplane at the, and, you know, they would serve food to you. They had comfort kits. I mean, coming and going, it was, it was really amazing. And I, I know I got on the airplane. It was the first time I really had flown first class. And the, uh, pilot said, you're flying first class, get up, get up there. You know, and I had, I think good coping skills, uh, having worked especially in law enforcement with uh, seeing a lot of trauma and, and, you know, death scenes and things like that. So that really prepared me for these kinds of moments. One of the things I did when I was in uh, Kuwait, they were having, the Army was having a tremendous amount of time, uh, problems with uh, suicide and uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, you know, and, and it, um, it, it was so overwhelming, they didn't have enough mental health personnel. Matter of fact, I never saw any uh, military personnel performing that role. It was all civilian contractors, guys with beards that looked like they should be in the classroom at some university, shrinking GI's heads. And um, they, they came up with a, a program where it was to educate people on the signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress and and suicide and so on and so forth and you got into especially for your supervisors how to screen uh you know what questions to ask what what do you observe at what point you intervene get the meds involved and and so on and so forth so i volunteered for that my spare time that's what i did i taught class and i uh always had an open door and you know spent a lot of time dealing with those kinds of issues over there. So overall, you know, I stayed busy and, you know, I had a good, what well, the key is you have a good support mechanism, whether it be your, the folks you work with or your family. And that makes all the difference in putting up with this kind of nonsense, you know? So I guess the thing that, that I would say is, and I don't know where this quote came from, but I believe it's, you know, was ground zero. It's just simply never forget. On all yeah. their the fire department equipment, their patches and stuff like that, you see that 
I mean, when you look at what happens and people take for granted, you know, I mean, sure, the casualties, you know, you had almost 3,000 people killed, 6,000 injured, whatever, all the cancers and post-traumatic stress from people that, that suffered. But, I mean, the most horrible things, um, you know, 10,000 body parts retrieved, and in, in, they were still finding them five years later. Uh, over 200 people jumped from that second tower. I had the opportunity to see that the filming of those people jumping. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the cost and, and so on and so forth. And I think one thing is, is so very telling, too, is when you get into the, the folks that were involved in this, that attack invo- impacted 77 different countries were killed or injured uh, in that attack. 77 different countries. And, uh, you know, I think that is just something else. So I think that my thing would be every year we need to recognize 911 and do a, a real brutal review of what transpired so we don't forget. You know, in general, as, as a country, we must heal. And I say it takes at least 20 years. And I've had the opportunity to visit uh, the Pentagon I went to Ground Zero, you know, went through the 911 Museum, and I, I have interacted with some people that were physically there. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that uh, we must recognize is, you know, what those folks went through and what was done to us. And uh, that, to me, is, is a, a message that people always need to be I think, involved and respectful of, of that particular day. You know, I, I, I go back and I remember when uh, President Bush, he said, we will not tire, we will not falter, we will not fail. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty tall order considering what we were trying to do, that is take down the Taliban, uh, eliminate al-Qaeda and uh, Osama bin Laden, in Afghanistan, I mean, that's a landlocked country. It's surrounded by not too friendly people, and you know, it was um, seven October that we attacked Afghanistan, and we were done with the Taliban by seventeen December. That is amazing that we projected that kind of force, formed an international coalition. Uh, I mean, even with the Soviet Union, the, 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 the uh, past enemy of the United States in the Cold War, um, you know, I mean, you talk about a logistical hump, uh, military hump, as well as diplomacy. That was one heck of an effort. And to get in there and do what we did, I think, is just amazing.